But I'd like for you to open two passages of Scripture in Titus chapter 2 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, we've been talking here about the glory and unity and harmony, but just sort of looking at a couple of side trips I was making in study, and I came across this, and I thought, you know, now this is interesting to me. I don't know if it is to everybody else, but it is to me because I like to study. I like to research and go back and forth this scripture to that scripture. And in doing that with the glory, I found out there's a lot about the word glory as it relates to our future. I don't mean just our tomorrows here, but I mean the next life. What's coming for us as believers if we hold fast, maintain what lies before us? What can we look forward to in eternity? Or at the time before eternity begins, right? You know, the time before the Lord's coming. And the more I cross-reference a lot of things, I begin to realize there is a lot in the Bible about this. For example, in Titus chapter 2, well, let's begin in verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, this is how we should live in this world, soberly, righteously, and godly. That's how we're supposed to live. And then we add that to this. As you live right and as you seek to do right, this is what else you look forward to as a result of that, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Now, that's what he wants. That's why verse 12 is in there. If we want to be there and see the event and the effect of this that God is doing happen in our life, then we have to make that quality decision to live the way he's clearly outlined in the Bible that we should live. I think everybody should know that in the church. If you want his blessings, you live the way he wants you to live in order to qualify. Amen? Anybody can go to church. Anybody can read their Bible and say their prayers at night. Anybody but the truth of what we are is seen in how we live. Any of us, all of us. What we really are is not in what we say, but by how we live. And I believe one of the effects of living right points us to our blessed hope, to the coming of the Lord. It's called a glorious appearing. When this appearing comes, I guarantee you the closer we get to this event, the more those that are looking forward to it are wanting it to happen. The closer it gets, now a person who doesn't think like this, doesn't give much thought to this, probably doesn't mean much to them, but I believe this, the closer you get, the closer you draw nigh to God, the more God draws nigh to you, the more of the reality of what we've been hearing is before us, the more the desire of our heart will be to live this way and come quickly to Lord Jesus. He's coming, and the effect of his coming is going to be glorious, to say the least, and there's a lot in the Bible about it. Now, would you also turn over to 1 Corinthians 15, and verse 51 and 52 concerning his coming. Now, I titled this message tonight, The Glory of Our Future. The Glory of Our Future. 
there are several things that are going to happen in our future. Now, all of these will run together and some overlap each other. But this is what we can look forward to as the glory that lies before us. Number one, we are going to be changed. I don't mean the maturing process. I mean those who are mature will be changed. Let me show you. In verse 51 and 52. Now this whole chapter has a whole lot to say about the coming of the Lord and the resurrection of the dead and so forth. For example, you're in 51. Look back in verse 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. Who is he talking about, them that slept? He says, them that slept. They're not sleeping now. They're not dead now. They never were actually dead. They have been resurrected, the first fruits. Now, I don't want to get into this, but the Bible teaches more than one resurrection. How many of you know that when Jesus died and was raised from the dead, many dead were raised with him? You find that in Matthew 27, verse 50-something. When he died on the cross and spoke his last words, the Bible said that many graves were opened and many who had died were seen by many walking in the streets. And the next verse says, this happened after his resurrection. So when he was raised from the dead, many others came with him. I think that's probably what is talked about in Ephesians chapter 4 when he led captivity captive because he made the reality of redemption and the presence of the Lord possible for sinful men to be saved and to be brought into union with the Lord. And he led captivity captive. That's another sermon too, but in verse 20, he said, Christ is risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. Now, slept meaning died. Now, in verse 51 again, Paul says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all die. Now, every man that lives dies. But there's coming a time in the near future that some who are here won't have to die. They will be alive. And here's what happens. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. That's made different, something uniquely different. Behold, he says in verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Now, this body we live in right now is called a corruptible body for the obvious reasons. If you left this body alone, it would not only die, but it would decay because it's made of flesh and blood. It's according to the elements of this world, the dust and so forth. And so this is a body of weakness, or as Paul writes in Philippians 3, it's a body of humility. It really governs what we can do and what we can't do. It can hurt and ache and get tired and sleepy, and, and it can be malfunction. So we have to kind of take care of it while we're here. But it's called a corruptible body. But he said this corruption must put on incorruption. That is a body that is different than what we've got. A body that's not like what we can understand or even relate to. All we have is a word that says our bodies, these physical bodies, are going to be changed. How long will it take him to change his body? I tried to find a clear definition about twinkling, but the best I could find was my own. A snap of the finger. In a moment, 
like a blinking of the eye, a twinkling of the eye, whatever you want to make that to be. It's quick. And there comes a time in which the change will happen so quickly to overcomers and to those that are matured and those that are looking forward to the Lord. There comes a time when they're now ready to be taken to heaven. And when he comes, Jesus comes, and he who alone can do this, in the twinkling of an eye, the human body becomes different. Now, it still looks the same. I think it'll look like it always has looked, except for those questions about, well, will old people still be old? Will babies be babies? Will we all be the same age? Or I don't know. I've never been there, but I guarantee you we'll find out. You live the life, and you'll get to find out. A trumpet's going to blow. You think, I wonder why. Well, a trumpet's always an announcement. You know, blow the trumpets when you call in a feast day, and they blow the trumpets, and everybody knew that the blowing of trumpets, which was also a feast day, a day of convocation, and they blew the trumpets, and there was a time for a gathering. That's what it was for. Let me have your attention. Come together. And I think even the Calvary did that, didn't they? When we won the West. Yeah, I know you've seen some old cowboy shows where there's somebody, and whenever they blew that, everybody knew they were supposed to do something. When I was in the Boy Scouts, I played the cornet. I played taps. And I tried to play the revelry. They called it, let's get up in the morning. I tried to do that. But my tongue wouldn't wiggle fast enough sometimes, and I had to slow it down. But it had a certain sound. And there will come a time in the last days, right, when the Lord comes, that there will be a trumpet sound. I don't know if anybody else besides us will hear it. I don't think they will. But I think that we will. And it signals to us that what we've been hearing, and for those that it's getting more real to, here it comes. And you'll be ready for it. Because the Bible said the Holy Spirit will show us what? He will show us things to come. And in verse 52, he said... The trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we, along with the dead who are still alive, we shall be changed. I like that. Because it means that I have something to look forward to, that death will have no effect on me. Death cannot hold me. We're passed from death unto life. Now turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 in relationship to what I just said in verses 51 and 52. And look in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13. This is usually read at funerals. At least I do. I read it at most of them that I have done because it relates to what happens to dead people. Not all dead people can have a happy funeral. But if a Christian dies... It could be a happy occasion. The first funeral I ever preached was for a man in Charlestown, Indiana, who had been saved about two months before. His initials were LT, and he was not a Christian. He was pretty much a GOB, a good old boy. And LT got saved and had a lot of evidence of it when you were around him. You could think, man, he's different. And one day, LT just died. Now, at that time, I had left the Christian church, and I was no longer part of it, but there's no other preacher there. So that family, his family, asked me if I'd come and preach his funeral. And I stumbled around, and I said, man, I don't want to. I mean, I'm thinking, I am not a funeral preacher. I never liked them, never did. I don't want to ever like them. But anyway, 
I said I wouldn't. I went to the funeral and got up a few notes about death and dying. And I began to see, just as a young Christian, that there's nothing about this occasion that has to be sad other than we don't have that familiar face that we've grown to love and enjoy. That person is not going to be here now. But as far as where he is and what happened to him, I think we can know that. Can't say that about everybody, but I could as far as I knew about him. So I preached a good part about it. We had a good time. We clapped our hands and we laughed. And one lady met me at the door. She was going out and she had a box of Kleenex in her arm like this. And she said, well, I never expected a funeral service like this. She said, I brought my Kleenexes, but I enjoyed it. <laughs> and I told her, I said, well, it doesn't have to be an occasion that lacks joy. Let's read it and see what it says. Verse 13, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep or have died, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Now, let's stop right there for just a moment. Does your Bible say that those that have died will be brought back to the earth? Let me make sure we understand so I can go on. I mean, these are little tidbits as you read scripture that you kind of want to meditate on. Those that are in Christ that have died, Christians, when a true Christian has died, the Bible said we don't have to sorrow like others who have no hope because if we believe that those who have died are with Christ, when he comes back, they will come with him. Amen? All right, let's go on. Verse 15. For this we say unto you, by the word of the Lord, this is direct revelation from Jesus Christ to Paul. This we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them or precede them which are asleep, those that have died. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven, and three things will tell us about it. With a shout, with the voice of the archangel, so an angels or angels plural are going to be involved in this, and with the trump, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Now, will we know in verse 16 that he's coming? We will. I do believe this, that there are too many people in the church that are too busy, too distracted, taking too much of what they've heard through the years for granted. They have this intellectual relationship where everything is based on how much I understand. If I understand it, yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, 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 yeah but it has no effect on the life. But for those that are affected by it and treat the word as a prize to be obtained, we count it precious. He said the fulfilling of this word is going to be a time of great joy because we're going to be ready for it and he's going to make us to know it's time. Woo! Whatever the shout is. Will we look up? And there'll be a trumpet. Thunk! The gathering, the great end gathering is coming. And there he will be. And in the twinkling of an eye, notice what he says. Verse 17, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them, that is the dead, in the clouds. And let me say something about the clouds. Because I've had too many cross-references today. You'll have to bear with me. Many times in Scripture, Old Testament and New, God and his movement towards the earth or about the earth is related often with clouds. 
Even the Mount Sinai, you know, whenever the Ten Commandments, there was a great cloud surrounding and swirling around and then lightning flashes and the blast of trumpets. Because that seems to announce the presence of God. It's a frightful thing to these people who were not living right. But to those like Moses who had a relationship with the Lord, it was not a terrifying thing. I don't think it'll terrify us either. I think the more spiritual we get, the more spiritually minded, anticipating we will be. We'll be looking forward to it. We know the times telegraph what's going to happen. When you see this come to pass, you know this. When you see this come to pass, you know that. When you see this, and men are evil, and the times are evil, and evil men and seducers and lovers of self. When you see all of these things start coming to pass, when you see overcomers start putting their enemy under their feet, and we start triumphing and overcoming all things, that's when we're close, because when all enemies are put under his feet, he said in 1 Corinthians 15, then comes the end. This is when he comes. Something's going to happen on this earth. We're not left blind here. And we see these things happening. We're prompted by the Holy Spirit, and we begin to wait for his coming with joyful hearts. Looking. Titus 2, didn't we read a while ago, we look for his blessed coming? It's not something we're just, I heard about it. We're looking for it. Isn't that right? Amen. And then in verse 17, then we which alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now notice he's not coming to the earth here. This is not a return of Jesus to this earth to set up his kingdom. He's still in the air. I mean, the only people that are hear his voice are those he's calling. The only people that are see him are those that are looking. And he's in the air. How is that? I don't know what it's going to look like. I just know what it says. We who are alive shall not precede those that are dead. The dead in Christ shall rise, and then we shall rise up together with them to meet him in the air. And then verse 17 ends it by saying what? So shall we what? So shall we ever be with Then we're not going to go up to him and then go somewhere else. We're going to forever be with him, that where he is, there we shall be also. So this is a picture, I think, that not only have we read or heard this before, but I think this is a thing that we ought to have in our minds. That's what's going to happen. So we can look forward to this. I don't want to be called a stargazer, but I do want to be a looker for Jesus, gazing upon his lovely face and so forth. And then in Matthew chapter 24, in verse 29, it speaks of this. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, so we're talking about a different time here, the tribulation. You read in Revelation chapter 7, for example, that many came out of the tribulation and were in heaven. They're asking the Lord, how long, Lord, how long, how long? But concerning the tribulation, at the end of this age, before the millennium, immediately after the tribulation of those days, Jesus said, shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. I can't tell you what that'll look like. I just know it's going to be a day of darkness when men will reel to and fro and not be able to find their way when all the most confident and sure people in this world will fail. This is the time of the day of the Lord of judgment. And then this happens when he comes back to this earth. And then there shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. 
And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels, that's the archangel, with the sound of a trumpet. And they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, some of this, as I said, runs together. But there is a time in which those that are looking for the Lord, who are waiting for his coming, it becomes very real because of this work that God does in a man. You're not just weird. You've got something that really is divine working in your life. And you're looking for the Lord's coming. And then there are those who are not looking for the Lord's coming, but like in Revelation 11, you read about the vials. When these vials were poured out, these terrible judgments on this earth. And all these vile judgments that are poured out on the earth cause men, at least twice in this chapter, to blaspheme God. They are not able to turn away from their sins. Nor can they die. They're just horribly caught up in the darkness of their souls. I'm sure they all had a time one day in eternity when judgment comes. There'll be a time in their life that God in eternity will point out and say, you remember the time when you heard and you were convicted and you were bothered by what you heard and I offered you a time to make peace with me and you wouldn't? See, the grace of God that brought salvation appeared to you, you just didn't want it. And you turned away from me and you lived your own life and therefore, as I can, only God keeps, I gave you up. Gave you up to your vile passions. He could have done that to us, but he didn't. Well, he could have done that to me, but he didn't. And that'd be a horrible, horrible day when you realize that there are those that we laughed and mocked at, they laughed and mocked at and made fun of. They'd be with the Lord. No more sorrow, no more pain, no more aggravations, no more misfits, no more languishing and anger and mockery, but you'll be there with him. If that's really real, then a man's life ought to somehow show that, don't you think? There should be some evidence that to you, I know in whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to keep what I've committed unto him against that day. There is a day coming. A day this earth will dread and hate is called the day of the Lord. There's a day coming in which Jesus will come and rescue you from this earth. And when you are taken off of this earth, that means there's nothing left in this world to commend it to God. If there's one reason tonight why God is favorable to this country and to this earth, it's because of Christians. I'm not talking about superficial Christianity and big this and big that and whoopee-doo here. and whoop. I'm talking about those who live the life, who understand the terms, and who are willing to live it. And when they are taken out of the way, 2 Thessalonians 2 talks about when they are taken out of the way, the only thing the devil fears is you. And when you're gone, there's nothing, nobody, no religion in the world that can prevent the devil from doing whatever he wants to. Nothing. And when all this is opened up on the world and the darkness belched out of hell comes on, on this earth and men cannot be saved, they can only be tormented. Trust me with this one, you don't want to be here then. I know a lot of people said, oh, I'm going to be there. Well, pray you're not. Pray that you'll be accounted worthy, Jesus said. Pray that you will be accounted worthy to escape all these things that are coming on this earth. 
But back to the point one, we're going to be changed. God is going to change us and turn us around. Would you look in John 5 with me also? Take us to heaven. We'll get new bodies. You know you get to eat in heaven? Isn't it nice to know you can't eat too much? You can't eat anything that would hurt you because you can't be hurt anymore. You got a new body. Didn't Jesus have a, now this is different. I can't explain this, but let me just point it out. Didn't Jesus have an incorruptible resurrected body? But he could eat natural food. Remember he ate fish with him on the seashore? Well, anyway, that you all can wrestle with that one. I don't know either. John chapter 5 and verse 28 talks about when the Lord comes. And who's going to hear him? Verse 24 first. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that hears my word and believes. Hears and believes. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath. Let me stop again. I love to stop. Here's an eternal truth in the scriptures. He that believeth hath. Believing is possessing. Amen. He that believeth in the Son of God hath eternal life. I think that's at maybe the very end of the chapter or something. I don't know. But he said, he that believeth in the Son hath eternal life. He that believeth not hath not life abiding in him. But you get what you believe for. If you're really believing for something eternal and you're giving your life to it, you'll get it. If you just know about it but you don't live as though it's true, you won't get it. He that believeth hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Who is? Who's passed from death unto life while they're still alive? Believers. Well, I'm a believer. Well, then that's for you. I go to church. No, he said, believe. Verse 25, verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. I like that. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of God. I notice the end of verse 21. For as the Father raiseth up the dead and give life to them or quickens them, even so the Son quickeneth whom? Who does Jesus quicken? Listen, Jesus gives life to whom he will. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't work for it. It's a gift. But to whom it is a gift, it will be evident that it has been given. Now see, I could be a Baptist a little bit, but I would go a little further. It's all by grace. Nobody deserves it. He singled you out for salvation before you were born. That's called election and predestination. That's Ephesians 1. And when you came into this world to live, God began to execute his plan toward you so that the day that was assigned for your salvation, he let go with his anointing and his conviction and whatever it took to cause you to see the sinfulness of your life, and he sent godly sorrow. Didn't the Bible still say godly sorrow brings repentance? God did that. Salvation is not an option. I cannot preach it. Well, if you want to get saved, folks, 
I mean, it may work like that because it comes by hearing. And hearing is designed to bring conviction. That's the way God does it from that point. But it's not up to man, it's up to God. You did not choose me. Remember, John 15, you didn't choose me, I chose you and ordained you. You can't do that. You can't get enough education to ordain yourself. You can't go to enough schools, read enough books, and write enough books to choose yourself to salvation. It's entirely the gift of God. Jesus can give it to whomsoever he wills. And if he gave it to nobody, he's still right. He doesn't have to save it. Who does he have to save? Who is deserving of salvation? Who merits it? Nobody. He doesn't have to give that to anybody. Jesus didn't have to come to this earth and die because it was a good thing to do. He came here because his father loves you. As I said the other day, God committed himself to saving you. And this is the way he did it. He sent his son who was committed to the father to fulfill the father's will. I come to do thy will. And his will was to make it possible for sinful men to be saved. And once that happened, then God, a loving God, began to let the grace of God that brings salvation be spread abroad. Announce it to everybody. Only a few will receive it. But announce it. I can't offer it to anybody. Maybe you picked up on after so many years. I don't give altar calls. I don't think it's mine to give. God saves whomever he wills. I can only tell you that he wants to save. If somebody came and said, I want to be saved, fine, I'll pray with you. I just like stuff like that. Listen to me. These are eternal theological truths. I don't care how you cut it and how you slice it. When these kind of truths begin to be settled in your heart, you become very aware of who he is and what you're not. It does humble you to know that you're not here because you're shrewd and clever, because you're looked up to or admired or have some gift. You're here because God chose you out of a pit and brought you to him. He can't use everybody because some people want glory. He said in Isaiah 43, he won't share his glory with anybody. And it only comes out in us when we begin to die at the cross. And then it's all Christ. He lives, we die. Amen. But in verse 28, one more time, marvel not at this. For the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice. There comes a time, folks, when everybody's going to hear his voice. Those that have persecuted him and rejected Christ, they're going to be raised. They may be suffering in a temporary chamber right now. But there's coming a day when hell will release its captives for the hour of judgment. And what an awful time that has to be when a man is standing there and he can't lie. He's not a victim. I mean, he's got no angle. His opinions don't count. And the all-knowing God begins to tell before the all of probably, what, 12 billion people, and they get to hear it. Maybe that many people. There is no time. You can stand there for, you know, a few thousand years because you've got a different body. You can't get tired. And you won't complain because you're a Christian. But anyway, 
Man begins to have his life unfolded before God. And he sees that God is altogether just in giving him this sentence of death. Because a man will say, you are indeed Lord. And he'll bow his knee because the Bible said every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. And I rejected him and you are altogether right in rejecting me. They'll know that. You can't argue anymore with it. And then the doors to a terrible place are opened. They'll be cast into outer darkness. I thought about outer darkness in the holy city as if Jesus is going to say in just a minute, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. It's a rather large place. You know, we got a satellite. How high? Two or three hundred miles up. And the holy city is 1,500 miles high. That's pretty high and lofty. The earth passes away, and here comes the only thing that is, is a new Jerusalem. Talk about mansions and chambers, 1,500 miles square. From here to Denver, out in somewhere in Nevada, that far this way, that far up, that far that way, Florida up in Northwest Territories. What a city. I'm going to be there. Reservations. And all of this is going to come to pass. Those that are ready, made themselves ready, are going to go. I get to thinking about this sometime when I'm alone, and all I can do is shut my mouth and think. Try to figure out, how do you explain this? I can't. This is over my head. But he gives us enough to talk about, and then he gives us a lot of reason to think. Wow. Are you ready for this place? Do you really want to go? Make it more real to me. I don't know that I can. The psalmist said in Psalm 47, 5, God is gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. And whenever those words are connected, it seems with his coming, that we're changed. The whole world's going to be raised up and know that, oh, no. Why did I turn away from God when I was a teenager? Why did I commit such an awful sin and then try, oh, God. But now you can't then those who were willing to live a life that everybody just mocked and made fun of called to meet the Lord in the air and you'll forever be with Jesus. That's better than any mall you've ever been in. Being with Jesus. The second thing is going to happen, you can turn to Philippians 3, we're going to be like him. What do you mean we're going to be? Well, we're going to be like him. I can't explain it. I'll read you a verse of scripture about it, but we're going to be like him. It said in Philippians 3.21, who shall change our vile body. Vile is just simply our body of humiliation, a body that just can overwhelm us and, and defeat us. Who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, his changed body, according to the working whereby he is able to subdue all things unto himself. Who, who's able? Jesus is. Jesus is going to change our body. You know that? In a twinkling of an eye, instantly something's going to happen and we're going to be like him. Now, again, when Jesus had a glorious body, he was still recognized as who he was, except on the road to Emmaus. Because he could change his appearance so that he was not known. And then after he prayed, they saw who he was. Remember that, the road to Emmaus? He's got a heavenly body. He can walk through a wall. He could just appear in a room. He could be here, and then he could be up in Galilee. 
He was not limited by space, obstacles, or anything. And yet he could eat. He didn't have to, but he could. Where'd the food go? I have no idea. It might have disappeared. He had a heavenly body. He had a new body, a changed body. Again, I don't know what age we will be in heaven, what we will look like. I really don't care. Just being there, if I was there as an old man, I'll still be able to run. Because you're not limited anymore. We may not even have to run anywhere. We may be able to just shut our eyes and be somewhere else. You may think yourself a few hundred miles north. There I am. Hi. Shut your eyes and be 200, 300 miles south. I don't know. I'm not trying to be funny. I'm just saying that this is a dimension nobody can relate to. But it's ours to think about. And you think about it enough, you get curious, and then you get curious. You might get interested. When you get interested, you'll study to see how much of it's true. Then the Holy Spirit has a reason to give you a revelation. It's just getting us to spend time with him, thinking about it. Remember this verse in 1 John? I mentioned this Sunday week ago. 1 John 3 and verse 2. Beloved, now, right now, we are the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him. We'll see him just like he is. We will see him as he is. Now, again, there's two verses in Philippians 3 and 1 John 2 that tells us that we're going to see him. Now, in the Old Testament, no man can look upon God and live, but you'll see him face to face. You get to see him face to face because that would be the third thing. We're going to see him. And a good verse for that is Hebrews 9, 28. It says, and unto them that look for him shall he appear. The second time without sin unto salvation. That's when in 1 Corinthians 13, we shall see him face to face. We sing songs about that. Now look upon his glorious face. And he will know you personally. And by that time when that which is not seen is now come into your life and Things that are muddled and unclear will be all clear. There he is. Everything you've heard about, studied about, that what the Old Testament is all about, that what your commitment in life is all, the reason you've been mocked and rejected, there he is. There he is. And you realize that day he was worth it all. He will know you even as you are known. He knows nothing about you. He knows the hairs on your head, knows every detail of your life. And yet everybody that is raised and everybody that he brings with him, everybody that he saves, he knows them all in detail, all at once. Can have communion with all of the redeemed at one time. Say, how can that be? I don't know. He's God. See, to me, it's the wonder of it all. We're out there in a, in a land of the Bible that there's not a lot of footprints in. A lot of songs from this side, but not a lot of people can tell us a whole lot about it. But we read these things, and we trust that the Holy Spirit will anoint our thinking to quicken us in some way that this becomes a real motivation in our life to live right. This is a reward. Unto those who look for him shall he appear. Not everybody's going to see him, but those that look for him are going to see him. 
They're going to see him. They're going to hear the shout, the voice of the archangel. They're going to hear the trumpet. I don't think anybody else will. And I think in the twinkling of an eye, we'll be gone. Just like that. I don't think dirt has to fly 30 feet in the air and the lid off of coffins and concrete flying. I, don't think, I think graves will be opened. But I don't think, you know, it's going to be airplanes crashing and buses wrecking and people running off the road. I don't think that many people, as some people think, are going to go, are going to go. Jesus said only a few are going to find it. Right. Too many people are too busy to live this way. We have too much going on. We're too involved with being and having and doing. And we set aside this for our hour of power on Sunday morning and maybe in the week if we can work it in our schedule. But generally, religion, we've acclimated ourselves to facts and ideas and opinions. And that's our religion. And this isn't really real. Oh, we read this in the Bible, but it doesn't affect us. We don't think, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think something is really deeper than life when you read and hear that for some people, they're going to see him face to face. Or as Isaiah 33 speaks of, seeing him in his beauty, the glory of it all, the glorious appearing of our Lord and our change to be like him and be caught up with him. And as 1 Thessalonians 4.17 says, so shall we ever be with the Lord. I think that's going to be a glorious time. And I think it's going to be a wonderful time. Matthew 24, again, it says this, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with great power and great glory. It says things like that more than once in the Bible. It's just like John 5. Those who hear his voice will be raised to life eternal. Then there's coming a time when everybody's going to hear his voice. It signals the end of time. Time shall be no more. Ages as we have known it and are used to it, it ends. All the dead are raised. There'll be a great assembly called the great white throne of judgment when all the dead shall assemble before the Lord. It's judgment and a fair and just God will give a fair and just sentence on all the dead. Nobody will be treated wrong. God is fair. If there's anything that he is among all the things, he's fair. I've had people ask me at funerals, well, what do you think happened to so-and-so? The best answer I've found yet is this. I don't know what happened to him, but I know this. He's in the hands of a just God. Or she's in the hands of a just God, and God will do what's right. And you have to agree with that. But boy, there's an uneasiness in your soul. You can't get too happy. Nobody usually is any closer to you than your family. I've had a brother die, my dad died, my mom died. My mother's death and funeral was not as difficult as my father's death. Because while I love my dad, I never saw anything of God in his life except he went to the Catholic Church every week. And he did that faithfully. But the substance of that is nothing. Zero. Nothing there. And it was kind of a, a difficult moment to know that you're looking at a box that contains a soul that won't ever see the face of Jesus in glory. But there's nothing you can do about it. You get over it and you go on. I have my life to live. I have children I want to see the Lord. 
I have a church, a congregation that I want all of them to go to heaven. And it's getting tougher to get them there, but I want them all to go to heaven. Well, because we all have a will, we all can make choices, and it's not always the right choices that we make because we're looking for comfort and happiness and convenience, and that's not always what God offers us. But the day's coming, they're going to see it. They're going to see him. Jesus said in Revelation 1, 7, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. amen. Revelation 1, 7. The fourth thing that's going to happen is we shall be with him. Now, I want you to turn to John 14 for this one. This is a very familiar passage, another funeral verse. But God forbid that we assign it just for funerals because of what it says in light of what we're talking about tonight. John 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, I want that. But now let me ask you a question. What's the connection here between house and mansion? In my father's house are many mansions. Now, some say rooms. The Greek, to me, doesn't say rooms. It just means dwellings. In my father's house, there are many mansions. I could have understood it either. said, in my father's mansion, there are many houses. It's a figure of speech. Let me draw something up here. It won't take time to draw it like it could be drawn, but... Let's play like this is a house. And all the little squares are mansions, dwelling places, rooms, assigned places, inherited places, an undefiled place that is reserved in heaven for you. I'm here, and one of you is there, and one of you is there. These are our places in glory. Now, what am I trying to say about all of this? Well, in Ephesians 2, we read this the other day, that God is putting us together for the habitation of God in the Spirit. You all remember that? Ephesians 2 and verse 21 and verse 20, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Every rock should be like that rock, growing up into him and all things and so forth. Verse 21, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built, it should be being built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Now, what is the habitation of God? Where is the dwelling place of God? According to this one verse. The dwelling place of God is in our midst, right? Where two or more, Jesus said, are gathered together, there I am in the midst of them. So if God is putting his people together from all walks of life and all different kinds of backgrounds and attitudes and makeups, he's putting all these people together and each one individually is getting individual attention from God as God refines and cleanses and all that. And he takes these little stones that are supposed to be after the chief cornerstone where all this is the kind of rock we ought to be. And he starts putting all these rocks together 
and every joint supplies, you remember Ephesians 4 and all of that. What does Ephesians 2 then say about this coming together of God's people? What will happen in the midst of them? He said God will manifest himself. Would that be glorious? Would that be a radiating of heaven's presence? Would that affect us? If something's being done in our life, it will. It's like something is taking place. Now, while I'm talking, God gives us things to think about, things he wants to use to refine us or to correct us or to turn us away from sin, whatever he says in a message to your heart. And he speaks all these things to bring us to a place where we become what he wants and he puts us together as a holy habitation of God. And 1 Peter 2 is living stones. We will offer up a sacrifice of praise. This is going to be a glorious thing. This is his habitation. John 14 and verse 23. If a man love me, he will keep my words. And my father will love him and we will come unto him and make our mansion with him. Mansions and abodes. Talk about the same word, the same Greek word. In my father's house are many abodes, abiding places. That is in the father's house, and this is a, it's a realm. There are those who abide under him, by him, and he operates through them, manifests himself. Through we die, he increases. He puts it all together, and it's a glorious habitation without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing. It's called a glorious church. Is that right? It's not just an assembly of religious people trying to do something better with their lives. It's a glorious church. Each part is glorious. Remember we talked the other day about we have this treasure in earthen vessels? What was the treasure? The glory that's in the face of Jesus. It's in here, individually. That's put in you. Christ in you is the hope of glory. And so whenever that is in you, and that begins to come forth, what happens? Something glorious happens, doesn't it? It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live now, I live by the faith of the Son of God. My life is controlled by him. I'm motivated by him because I love him. He loves me. I abide with him. He abides with me. It's a dwelling place of the Most High, Psalm 91. No evil shall befall you. No plague of now your dwelling. And on and on and on. That's the kind of life you can live now. So that what the world says and does to you doesn't turn your way and turn you off. And you don't give up and quit because of evil times. You found something bigger than life. Something inside that began to come forth. I just think that the end time Christian, those who are dedicated to overcoming and to loving God, are going to be most uniquely different from everybody else on this earth. They got the same body at the time. But the world is so unworthy of such people that Jesus will come and take them. Am I saying the rapture? I am. In the twinkling of an eye, bam, they're gone. Where did they go? They're going to a place they were expecting to go to, the presence of the Lord. So shall we ever be with him. Where is he? He's in the air. Where? I don't know. 
It's probably a time of the great marriage supper of the Lamb. It's probably a time where we cast our crowns before his feet and all of that. It's a time where the Lamb is everything we've wondered about. There he is. Not to the world, but to us. Well, that's worth living for. It's not real to very many people, but it's in the Bible and it's worth living for. It really is. And he said in 2 Timothy 2, you remember this, if we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. Reign with him? Yeah, he's coming back to set up his kingdom. Did you know that? He is. Jesus is coming back. Remember the little story in Luke 19 about giving 10 talents to one, five talents to another one, and one talent to one guy? And he said, I'll come back for an accounting later on. He came back later on, and he said to me, I had 10 talents. He said, What'd you do with it? I gave you 10 talents on this earth. That was mine. Those are my talents. I gave them to you to use. And what'd you do? He said, I took your 10 and made 10 more. And I think a little hint of what's coming when we reign with him before this millennium comes, after the tribulation, during the millennium, I think here's a little key. He says, you've been good. Well done. He said, I'll give you to rule over 10 cities. That's Luke 19. Uh, you that had five, let me see what you got. He said, I got five more. He said, you'll rule over five cities. Now, he said, we're going to reign and rule with him. Now, somebody will. The guy that had one hit it, and he didn't get anything except what he didn't want. Called him a wicked servant. God invested, if it's just a little bit in us, he expects a little bit out of us. He's giving you a whole bunch. He expects a whole bunch. Are you with me? Amen. And you know what? It just may determine how we're conducting our lives now. Not only may determine whether or not we make it, but if we do make it, just exactly in what way we're going to reign with the Lord. He said, if we suffer with him now, he said, we shall reign with him in heaven. If we suffer, we reign. If we deny him, Bible says he will deny us. And yet the word suffer in that same 2 Timothy 2 in verse 10 is translated endure. Now anybody can suffer crying and, and whining and wailing about it and not really be overcoming. But to endure is to overcome. That's how the perfecting work of God takes place is when you endure James 1. So there are those in which the work is going on. You're overcoming right now. Something has appeared to you that's bigger than life. It's like a treasure hid in the field. You're looking for it. It's necessary to find it. It's like a lost sheep. You got to find the one, and one's worth finding. And you begin to give yourself to this seeking after this treasure that the world's not even interested in, but you know how vital it is, and you find it. And what comes out is glorious. Whoa. And while people think you're just a little religiously eccentric, boy, you just say, if you could see what I see, if you see what I see, if you could just see it, you'd be wanting to see it too. Amen. When I was a little boy, one of the greatest things that ever happened in my young life was to go to Fountain Ferry Park in West Louisville. 
all the way on the river, past Shawnee, out in that part. There was never a greater place to go as a child than to, for me, to Fountain Ferry Park. It wasn't a huge place, but it was big when you're little. And man, and my mother and dad would take me over there. My mother, somebody would, aunts and whatever. We would go maybe two or three times a year. And in anticipation of going, I couldn't sleep. I could shut my eyes and see the laughing people out front and all the mirrors you try to walk through and the slides and the bow that goes around the Ferris wheel and that thing that goes like this, you know, those things that go like this. And, and you knew you were going to be in them. And the ponies were down in the far back corner. And I knew I was going to ride that pony. I knew that. I just didn't want anybody to lead me around. I wanted mine, just me and it. And it's just such a thrill. I could tell you all about it, and it doesn't move you any. But I can see it. Are you with me? I could see it. Man, it was a thrill of my life. I would like to think in some way, but greater, but similar to that, we are tasting the powers of the world to come. And something is so exciting about it that it drives us. That's why we're here. That's why we read. That's why we pray, why we study, why we throw our hands up against sin. Because I want to be ready. Because those that are ready, that's in the Bible too. They that were ready went in. Turn to Romans chapter 8 because we're going to be glorified. The fifth thing that's going to happen is we're going to be glorified. We're going to be changed we're going to be like him, we're going to see him, we're going to be with him, and we're going to be changed. Romans eight seventeen. and if children, then heirs. Maybe that's the 10 cities of Luke 19. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Wow. Think about it. When he comes back, when Jesus comes back, like Paul wrote in the book of Colossians chapter 3, he says, when Christ who is our life shall appear, he says, then shall you also appear with him in glory. When he appears, you will appear with him. See, you're caught up in the air to be with him. Whatever happens after that, we don't know. But then we know that when he comes back, he comes back with us. Because we're going to reign and rule with him. And those who are on this earth in that day shall see him in whom they appear. So the Bible said in Revelation 1, they're going to wail because of him. It's like saying, oh, no, I, this is really, really right. It's just like the last guy floating at Noah's Ark. What a dumb thing. A big box. Hey, who are you? And then the animal's going, oh, I hate to be in there. <laughs> and then one day, the door just goes, nobody picked it up. It just, I guess it did. And then everybody said, what was that? Well, the door's on there. Who put the door up? I don't know. And then the first drop falls. What was that? What is that? And then it starts falling. And then the story is the most real it could be because then everybody knows what they've heard is right. You know how horrible a time that would be? Realize it starts raining 
and the rain starts falling, and then they turned to that ark, and they couldn't get in. They clawed on it, pleaded with whoever was in there, opened the door. They can't. They didn't shut it. Pleading all their heart, so sincere. There's never been a more sincere time than those who are outside of the ark, whenever they realize this is it. It's over. It's over. And the rain keeps falling. It won't stop. And the toughest of the tough, the strongest of the strong, lasts the longest. They float on that log. I don't know, or a limb or tree, whatever they're on, for how long? Well, they can't eat. There's nothing to eat. They're not thirsty. Until they finally, with hunger, they just fall off the log. And they sink. And the only people got saved, those in the ark. But that ark was a stupid thing. It was so ignorant, all them people going into that ark and all them animals. <laughs> Noah, what's the matter with you? Then it's over. I don't think anybody in the ark was glad all those people perished. They didn't see them anyway. Until the last one died. You see, I would like to think that the picture that God gives us is worth building an ark for. And the only reason we build it is because not only is heaven real, but hell is real also. One should be gained, one should be avoided. And whatever it takes to make it and to avoid the bad place, if a man has any sense at all, that's what he'll do. That's what he's going to do. But to live this life, you're going to suffer for it. You're going to be rejected, put down. Paul said this, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Because we're going to come back with him. Jude 14 says, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. The Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. Or 1 Thessalonians 3.13, To the end that we may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with his saints. We're coming back. We're going to make a comeback. Will you be there? Hallelujah. Bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, your word is real and it's true and there's no denying it. Would to God it was more real than it is to us. But that's the work of your spirit, Lord. He's the one who quickens us. He's the one who stirs us. He's the one who makes us to meditate and think on these things. It is because of your spirit, Lord, that we are prepared. That the soberness of all of this begins to come. It's when we lay down the toys of this world to seek after God. I pray in the name of Jesus, Lord, that you would find it in your heart to save everybody in this church. Whatever it takes whatever day, whatever place, whatever moment that you would do a deep and sincere eternal work in everybody's life in this room. Everybody in this church, those who listen to this on tape, may the soberness and the seriousness of your word find its lodging place in our hearts that we truly in these last days may assemble as the redeemed of the Lord Gloriously, knowing that the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing, but we shall obtain everlasting joy. 
Bless us with a measure of that now, Lord, as much as we can stand. I ask in Jesus' name, amen, amen.